In 2014, Pomona SWAT officer Sean Diamond was fatally shot by David Martinez during a raid on the Martinez family home. According to law enforcement, the act was murder. According to Martinez, it was self-defense. From Crime Story Media and E1 Entertainment, this is Night Raid. I'm your host, Molly Miller, and this week, we're covering the jury deliberations in addition to the outcome and aftermath of the 2019 murder trial, including interviews with jurors about what went on behind closed doors. Okay, I'm going back to work and, you know, I'm making plans. And then next thing I know, I'm swearing in. I got so frustrated at one point. There are three people holding out. They are not making logical arguments here. This is not, you cannot say, I just don't believe it. Stick around for the seventh installment of Night Raid after this. This is a story about a man who is either guilty or not guilty of murdering a police officer. And this is a story about time. The days officers used to plan a SWAT raid, the seconds required to break through a metal screen door, the years it took for David Martinez to move through the criminal legal process, and the week it took for a jury to deliberate David's case. It started with jury instructions, a dry but informative hour in which Judge Charlene Olmedo read the panelists the criminal laws that applied to the case. The instructions included the definition of first and second degree murder, manslaughter, lawful self-defense, and an explanation of one legal maxim that is the cornerstone of all criminal trials. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt. A defendant in a criminal case is presumed to be innocent. This presumption requires that the people prove a defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt is proof that leaves you with an abiding conviction that the charge is true. The evidence need not eliminate all possible doubt because everything in life is open to some possible or imaginary doubt. Unless the evidence proves the defendant guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, he is entitled to an acquittal, and you must find him not guilty. After the jury received their instructions, they walked down a back hallway to a conference room. They brought their Kleenex, their coffee cups, their hoodies, their purses, their chapstick, their notepads. They carried their impressions of the defendant and the attorneys, their understanding of the evidence and the law. They dragged in their natural biases and life experiences, everything so stuck to their identity that no jury instruction could scrub it off. And then, the 12 jurors from across L.A. County sat down to debate whether or not David Martinez was guilty of the murder of Officer Sean Diamond, beyond a reasonable doubt. Today, we'll hear from two of those jurors about everything that happened behind closed doors. We'll learn the final outcome of their deliberations, guilty, not guilty, or a hung jury, and what that meant for David Martinez in the aftermath of the trial. I'm Molly Miller, and this is Night Raid. Were you excited to do jury duty? No. The first time I got a jury uh, summons, I threw it away. And then they sent me another one threatening me with all this stuff. So I'm like, okay, fine. (laughs) 
That's Janine Eiley, one of the jurors at David's trial. She was able to remember what was said in deliberations, in some cases verbatim, because after the trial, she wrote down a detailed account of her experience, her own narrative of the events. Janine is one of those effervescent people who contain a million stories. She was born in Belize, and when she was 11, she moved with her family to New York. She's been a beauty queen, a member of the Marine Corps Reserve, and currently works as a night nurse. But there was one part of Janine's life that made her certain that she wouldn't be selected for David Martinez's trial. My mouth was to the floor when they selected me because, you know, as they're interviewing each person, they're looking at your questionnaire. And on there, I had told them, yes, my dad was a police officer back in Central America. I've dated police officers, you know, um, throughout the years. Some of my good friends are police officers. Janine's father was a police officer who eventually became a superintendent at a prison in Belize. Then, later in life, Janine had a long-term relationship with a police officer in New York. Janine thought that given her background, the defense would object to her presence on the jury, that they would assume that she would be too sympathetic toward the police in a case involving the death of an officer. And every time they bypassed me and, and left me there, I was like, what are they doing? I'm in my mind, I'm packing up and, okay, I'm going back to work and, you know, I'm making plans. And then next thing I know, I'm swearing in and my mouth is to the floor like, huh? What? Janine, like most people, was not excited about jury duty. But the second juror we spoke to wasn't like most people. Had you ever served on a jury before? Never. I had always wanted this experience. To me, it was a bucket list item. I saw it as, you know, an interesting civil duty. And I was really excited about it, to be completely honest. That's Ryan Carroll, another juror at David Martinez's trial. Ryan is analytical, a highly logical thinker. He grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, then studied at the University of Michigan. When he graduated, he moved to Washington, D.C., where he got a gig in technical consulting within the data science space. A few years later, he moved to Los Angeles, where he specialized in new product innovation. Ryan started out enthusiastic about jury duty, but it didn't last. So why don't we start getting into deliberations? The most frustrating week of my life. What does this room look like? Okay, the room, just like the courtroom, probably has not had a remake since 1995. (laughs) And there are clippings on bulletin boards that also probably haven't been changed since 1995. And you sit there around a huge table and you've got a chalkboard. And that's about it. You're not supposed to be using phones. There's not food, there's nothing. Just sit there from, if I recall correctly, I think it was 10 o'clock to about 5 o'clock each day. And you you debate. What kind of people are in this room with you? All ages, all ethnicities, all spectrums of job profiles. Like one of the people who I got to know well worked for a high profile celebrity as a personal assistant. And another was a night nurse. Another was a lawyer. We had some retirees in the room. We had somebody who did baggage handling for an airline. 
I think we had a student. I think we did have a college student in the room. Janine, Ryan, and the rest of the panelists settled into the jury room. In the United States, all criminal trials require a unanimous jury in order to reach a verdict. That meant that all 12 jurors, from the celebrity personal assistant to the airline baggage handler, would have to do everything in their power to agree on the outcome of the case before they could return to their normal lives. Juror information is sealed at the end of criminal trials in California, so we don't have the names of the other jurors on the panel. Instead, we'll refer to them by profession or general description. The jury's first task was to select a foreperson to preside over the group's deliberations. The votes were split between Janine and a man who was an attorney. Initially, we took a vote, right? We everybody, It was a secret vote, and we all put in who we wanted to be as a juror, which number. So the attorney, he got more votes than I did. So he was initially selected to be the jury four person. And then he started saying, well, you know, I, I don't mind doing it, but... I don't want people to be swayed just because I'm an attorney. And we were saying, oh, no, 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 that's fine. And then another juror, she had really wanted me to be the jury for a person. She's like, oh, okay. Um, well, Janine had the second highest vote. So Janine is going to be the jury for a person. To get an initial sense of where everyone stood, Janine took a preliminary survey of the room. Who believed David was guilty of first-degree murder? Who believed David was guilty of second-degree murder? And who thought David acted in lawful self-defense? Remember that in California, first-degree murder is murder that is premeditated with the deliberate intent to kill. Second-degree murder is generally all killing with malicious intent but without premeditation or deliberation. And lawful self-defense occurs when an individual reasonably believes that they or someone else are in danger of imminent physical harm, and they use a reasonable amount of force to stop that danger. According to Janine, when she first pulled the room, zero jurors believed David was guilty of first-degree murder. Ten jurors believed David was guilty of second-degree murder. And only two jurors believe David acted in self-defense and ought to be acquitted. And once again, my mouth fell to the floor. I couldn't believe it. From Janine's perspective, the case was straightforward from the beginning. She didn't anticipate a debate. Basically, I could put myself in his situation, knowing that at 4 a.m. is when a lot of crimes happen, you know, breaking burglaries, you know. So for me, all of the other things didn't matter because this could happen to any one of us. If my neighbor was a drug dealer and they mistakenly came to my house, breaking into my house, you know, I would have probably reacted the same way. And that's one of the reasons I didn't want to have a gun in the house, because when you have fear, it's one or two things, either fight or flight. You know, you might either just freeze like a deer or just do something crazy because you're so panicked. So in my mind, it was a clear-cut case. He was innocent. I thought we would deliberate for a maximum of three hours and we'd be done. Janine believed that David was innocent. She said that all the evidence the prosecution presented about David being a Mongol, 
All the pictures of him at motorcycle events, the t-shirts and the vest. That seemed like a red herring. It wasn't what the case was actually about. And she wasn't impressed with the parade of officers giving testimony either. The SWAT team's testimony bothered her, specifically what they said happened after the shot. The officers claimed that they didn't use force on the Martinez family, that they acted with restraint. Janine didn't buy it. They're coming up there meek and mild, gentle as a lamb. And I know for a fact, without a shadow of a doubt, that's not what happened, you know? When you're in that kind of situation and your officer got killed, you were in there cursing, hitting, pushing, whatever it was, and you're mad, you know? You're not this guy in a suit that's all meek and mild and gentle and you held back from shooting people because you cared. You probably just didn't know what happened. So how they were acting was just, to me, one big lie. While Janine had a pretty straightforward view of the Martinez trial, Ryan Carroll's opinion of the case was a bit more complicated. So you hear circumstances like this in the statement from prosecution, and the defense comes back and says it was self-defense. And honestly, there was a little bit of an internal eye roll at the beginning. And I said... Well, I mean, there has to be a defense. You're saying you started out actually leaning towards, oh, it seems like this guy's guilty. Absolutely. I asked Ryan to explain what gave him the initial impression that David Martinez was guilty. Based on the type of weapon, based on the gang affiliation, based on having respect for the police, it was very hard for me to really believe that this was something that could have gone off the rails so much that somebody could be that confused that they would shoot and truly have done that in an accidental manner. I was definitely swayed at the beginning and thought, okay, this will be a pretty easy case to make a conclusion on. Early in the trial, Ryan thought that the prosecution had a stronger argument. But as the proceedings continued, he became less certain The reality is that very early on, police officer testimony wasn't consistent, right? And you have to appreciate that that's going to happen. But it happened a lot. So these are things like how much time something took or where I was standing or what was the lighting like or how long did we serve this notice? So that was the first part that started to sway me. The next was... The fact that I felt that putting the family on the stand did a world of wonder for the defense in the sense that they put personality and they put emotion and context of family history around all this, right? And when you find out this guy who supposedly is a gangbanger, I think we can imagine what the stereotype of that is going to look like towards women. When you find out he's been in a common law marriage for almost 25 years, something about that just doesn't seem to fit, right? And again, of course, that's a small detail, but that to me did stand out initially. And this woman, from my perspective, very put together. I was impressed when she spoke. Now, there were also things about how, for instance, he how his family was giving for him and how he provided in return and all this stuff. And I I just remember thinking to myself, okay, 
This isn't a guy that's coming home late at night violently. He worked for this extermination business and in fact on the night that this happened had supposedly been up working until three in the morning. So I think that that to me started to chip away a little bit at my perception of what what was this guy really like in this gang? You can't say because he was in this gang by induction he's a bad guy, right? That's just not how things work. So, so that was the second thing. Um, I'm, try, I'm trying to remember other specific details. I think once I started to put together the fact that they had not surrounded the house in a 360 degree manner, I said, okay, check, reasonable doubt, right? He might not have heard it. Ryan went on to say that the evidence that SWAT officers were banging on a metal gate during the announcements also made him doubt that David heard the police identify themselves. He also stated that Officer Jaime Martinez's testimony that he pointed his weapon into the house made him inclined to believe that David saw the barrel of a gun and fired his shotgun in self-defense. According to Janine, at the start of deliberations, she and Ryan were the two jurors who believed David was not guilty of first or second degree murder beyond a reasonable doubt. Ryan recalls there may have been a more even split maybe a few more jurors leaning towards not guilty. But either way, they were in the minority. Chances of David's acquittal appeared slim. While we respected the rules of juror privacy, we did use a variety of channels to invite all of the trial's jurors to speak with us. Janine and Ryan were the only panelists who took us up on the invitation. The jurors began deliberating, but they didn't get very far. Everyone was stuck in their original positions, and no one was engaging in debate. On the third day, Ryan suggested that the jurors narrow their scope of discussion. So what I proposed to the group was, we need to break this down into two components. It really comes down to, did he see the police? Did he hear the police? If I can give you a reasonable argument against both of those, then that is enough to acquit. Over the course of the next few days, the jurors' opinions shifted. The more they talked, the more jurors found holes in the prosecution's case, cracks that left room for reasonable doubt. When the dust settled, the room was split nine to three. This time, the majority believed that David Martinez was not guilty of second-degree murder, while the minority was adamant that he was guilty. According to Ryan, arguments between the two camps grew combative. Whenever I had a chance to speak, I would keep reiterating, our job is to provide a reasonable doubt to this argument. And what you're telling me is, the argument I'm giving you isn't a reasonable argument. And I need you to explain to me why it's not a reasonable argument. If, if you truly feel differently about this. And so my frustration stemmed from the fact that as we got further and further along, people became more set in their ways. And I remember one of them, a woman lived in a small house and she said, you know, I would have heard it. And we said, but, but what about this, this, this? And she said, you know what? I just, I don't believe it. She said, I just, I feel that way. She's like, you can't convince me otherwise. That's how I feel. Janine explained the arguments of the three holdouts, the jurors that believed David was guilty of second-degree murder. She started with the woman who Ryan described, the one who lived in a small house. Janine referred to her as the elderly lady. One juror 
this elderly lady, she did not deliberate at all. She says, well, he had to have heard. It's a very small house he heard. You have to convince me that he did not hear. And I'm explaining to her, that's not how this works. We don't have to convince you of his innocence or that he heard or anything like that. I said, look at the facts on both sides. There's reasonable doubt he didn't hear. Our instructions were, if you have reasons on both sides, you pick the one that points to innocence. Janine was trying to explain to this juror the prosecution's burden of proof. They had to convince the jury that the defendant was guilty. Not possibly or probably guilty, but guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. The defense didn't have that burden. In the eyes of the law, David was innocent until proven otherwise. And she's like, nope. She crossed her hand and she made it about her very personal. She's like, well... Um, all my life I've been picked on and I gave in and not now I'm going to speak up for myself and I think he heard and that said she would not deliberate any further. The second individual who believed David was guilty of second degree murder was a man the jurors called the Texan because he was from Texas. The second one, he said that um, I think that because he's a gang member, he saw that it was the police coming in. He was like, how dare the police come into my house? And he blasted. This is almost verbatim. This is what I wrote while my uh, memory was still fresh. The Texan especially frustrated Janine because he initially agreed with the majority that some of the elements of the case gave him reasonable doubt of David's guilt. But then he backtracked. So I said, but you have reasonable doubt that, you know, X, Y, and Z. He's like, well, I don't care. That's not reasonable to me, you know? And he didn't want to hear anything else. According to Janine, the Texan was so fired up at that point that he decided that his initial assessment was wrong. David, in his opinion, wasn't just guilty of second-degree murder. He was guilty of murder in the first. I don't know what it is with David or what he took away from the prosecutor's side. He went back up to first degree. He's like, you know what? I think it's first degree. And I'm like, what? And then he threw us a bone later on and came down to second degree. But I'm telling him, I said, dude, I said, you're arguing stuff that even the prosecutor never even said. I said, the prosecutor never said, oh, he thought it's the police. How dare you come into my house? They never even referred to how dare you. And that's why he did it. So he just basically made up his own scenario and went with it. And I'm telling you, my mind was just like floored. I'm like, what in the world are these people smoking? I'm like, is this how people deliberate? Is this our, is this how people, you know, go to jail? Joining the Texan and the elderly woman, there was one more juror who was stuck on second degree murder. The attorney... So he and I kept going back and forth, right? And because he was an attorney, he was a lot more influential because people thought that he knew what he was talking about, you know, given that he's an attorney. But his biggest problem was the proximity. He said the house is so small, the proximity was five feet. He had to have seen the police officer. Janine says the attorney couldn't get past how close David was to Sean Diamond. It seemed impossible to him that David didn't see the officer. I said, nobody is saying he didn't see. We all know someone was there. The issue is, did he see the insignia? 
that's the issue if he saw police. And I'm like, we know someone was out there. That's not in contention. But it's dark. It's a small light. It's a sliver of an opening. And this officer is hurrying to try and turn away. So the angle he's turning and at the distance and, you know, your head is probably like really noisy with like what's going on and you can't even think, you know, you don't have time to see a small sign through a sliver of a door. The jurors kept deliberating for days. They repeated their points and exhausted their arguments. When the judge asked for an update, Janine informed the court that they were at an impasse on second-degree murder. Judge Almeida encouraged them to keep trying. I got so frustrated at one point. There are three people holding out. They are not making logical arguments here. This is not, you cannot say, I just don't believe it. That's, I don't care if, like, you know, again, I, I don't know how to, to properly express this without trivializing their beliefs because you certainly are entitled to going along with an argument or not. But I think the thing is that there is a certain point of objectivity where this is a reasonable argument, whether or not you yourself see it. Finally, they hit a breaking point. So what happened next? We alerted the clerk that we had reached a decision. On June 28, 2019, the jury in the trial of David Martinez filed into the courtroom, some with furrowed brows and jaws set, others with baggy eyes and slumped shoulders. Janine informed Judge Olmedo that they had tirelessly deliberated and had reached a partial verdict. She passed the signed verdict form to the judge, who reviewed it and passed it to the court clerk. David looked on from the counsel's table, fixated on the paper in the clerk's hands. Behind him, his family bent their heads in prayer, and Sean Diamond's daughter clutched her notepad. The clerk read the verdict. The jury found David Martinez not guilty of first-degree murder, but they were deadlocked on the charge of second-degree murder and never progressed to a discussion of the charges of voluntary manslaughter or assault with a firearm on a police officer. After four and a half years and a two-month trial, the outcome was a hung jury. Ryan Carroll recalled the final discussion in the jury room, the moment that made him realize they were never going to reach a complete verdict. I said, is anybody who is holding out on voting guilty open to acquitting him? And so either you have to be still open to coming to that side or this is over. That There is no alternative option. And that was kind of, I think we went around at that point and like reaffirmed what our votes were. And that was where we said, okay, this is, this is over. The trial was over, but emotions lingered, even for the jurors. I was very frustrated. I was disappointed in our justice system. I couldn't believe this was our justice system at work. I mean, I still respect it because it's the best we've got. It's still better than a lot of countries. But it was just very, very frustrating that someone can go to jail based on prejudices. The experience of serving on a jury changed the way that Janine thought about our judicial process. For her, it was unsettling to see judgments cast based on what she perceived as inflamed emotions 
rather than the solid facts of the case. And it was just very disheartening because for me, it made me understand how our minority men, you know, how they get incarcerated at such a high rate. I felt sad for my own two black boys growing up. And this is what they have to face just because maybe the color of their skin or something they did that they don't like them and based on those prejudices. So I'm like, how does justice ever get done in this country if people go around voting based on their feelings? After the partial verdict, Judge Olmedo declared a mistrial, and the DA's office decided to pursue a retrial. Because the jury in David's case was deadlocked on second-degree murder, and a verdict wasn't reached, the prosecution was free to retry the charge. Following the trial, I reached out to Sean Diamond's mother, Joy Diamond, to see how she felt about the partial verdict. The jurors, I will never trust the jury system again. And I hope at the trial that my son finally gets justice. Meanwhile, David returned to jail, where he waited for his day in court all over again. As for the jury, most of them went home and moved on with their lives. But not Janine. She got in touch with David's family and started writing letters to David while he was in jail. Um, we became very, very close. I started visiting him on Fridays in the jail. Um, I, I would visit him, put money in his books, buy him packages, um, write him letters. He'd write me letters. Um, I talked to his sister. I got to meet his, uh, started speaking with his mom and started getting close to his mom. And um, yeah, so we just started getting very, very close and he was just so appreciative of everything. The way Janine tells it, her relationship with the Martinez family just snowballed from there. Now she spends holidays with David's family, goes to barbecues with his sister, and refers to Guadalupe as her second mom. In jail calls obtained by the LA Times, Janine encouraged David to, quote, give praise and love to God, end quote, and to treat his wife like a queen. Janine even attended one of David's court hearings after the trial. She told me that the prosecutor did a double-take when he saw her in the gallery. David's first trial ended in late June of 2019. His bail was set at $3 million, meaning that the Martinez family would have to pay $300,000 to a bail bondsman in order to secure his release. They didn't have the necessary funds, so David remained in jail. The retrial was scheduled for February of 2020. Then it got pushed to March. Then... The coronavirus taking a greater toll on the U.S. by the hour. Breaking news, stay at home. That is the order tonight from four state governors as the coronavirus pandemic spreads. And the virus now in all 50 states. There are now more than 6,400 cases in the U.S. That number is going to skyrocket as more tests take place. David Martinez was in men's central jail for the entirety of the pandemic. The courts closed down, and even the most high-profile trials were postponed. As the entire globe sheltered in place and took safety precautions to avoid the virus, jails in California and across the country became COVID hotspots. Amidst the chaos of the coronavirus, L.A. County elected progressive prosecutor George Gascon as district attorney. 
The change in regime gave Brady Sullivan and the Martinez family hope that David's case might be reviewed and potentially dismissed. But ultimately, the DA's office decided to proceed with a trial. In Los Angeles, COVID restrictions began to lift in June of 2021. David's retrial was scheduled for September of 2021, then rescheduled for January of 2022. Then, due to a conflict in the court's calendar, it was rescheduled for March. Opening statements in the retrial of David Martinez were finally heard on April 12, 2022. This time, Prosecutor Jack Garden was joined by co-counsel Hillary Williams. Together, the deputy district attorneys sought to convince a new jury that David Martinez was guilty of second-degree murder. The second trial of David Martinez played out much like the first. The prosecutors brought in SWAT officers to testify about their positioning. They called David's parents to question them about the announcements they heard. And they questioned David about his affiliation with the Mongols. But the DDAs had one significant tactical change to their argument. They emphasized David's use of methamphetamine. With first-degree murder off the table, the prosecutors didn't have to convince the jury that David's actions were premeditated. If David was high on meth, acting irrationally, and shot Officer Diamond with malicious intent, that could be grounds for conviction on second-degree murder, as long as he wasn't acting in lawful self-defense. When David Martinez took the stand in his second trial, Brady Sullivan addressed his client's use of methamphetamine, specifically in the days before the shooting. On October 26, 2014, on the Sunday before the incident at your house, did you go to a Mongols event? Yes, I did. Was that called the Save the Patch event? Yes, it was. Was this event a fundraiser to raise money for the legal defense for the Mongols in federal court? Yes, it was. Was this a mandatory event for all Mongols? Yes, it was. Was the event like a party? There was alcohol. There was a lot of people there. A party? It was more like a gathering. At the Save the Patch event, did you see methamphetamine being used by anybody at this event? Yes, I did. Did you yourself use any methamphetamine at that event? Yes, I did. So, where did that happen? In the bathroom. How was it you used the methamphetamine? Take a key, scoop it up, and snort it. A key shot. What did you do with it? Did you put it in anything? Put it inside my business card. Was that the same business card and methamphetamine that was found by the sheriff's department when they searched the office? Yes, it was. Was that the last time you used methamphetamine before October 28, 2014? Yes, it was. David's blood tested positive for methamphetamine on the afternoon of October 28, 2014, several hours after the 4 a.m. raid on the Martinez home. But according to David, the last time he used drugs was on October 26, 2014. On cross-examination, Jack Garden also questioned Martinez about his drug use at the Save the Patch event. At that event, you used meth, correct? Yes, I did. How much methamphetamine did you use? A couple key shots. When you say a couple key shots, how many do you mean? Uh, like two or three. Did you do them one after another? I did. The first time I did two, and then I did one before I left to sober up a little. You did two key shots, you let some time lapse, and you did a third key shot? Yes. 
After you did the third key shot, you then took some to take home with you, correct? No, they gave me some when I first did it. I already had it in my business card. So you did two key shots of methamphetamine, and then you took some for later? No, it was given to me, and I took it, and I put it in a little pocket in my Levi's and went about my day. The meth that you took with you, you took it because you wanted to get high again, correct? I took it because that's what he gave me. You could have declined it. I could have declined it. You chose not to decline it. Should have. You chose not to decline it. That's correct. Next, Jack Garden asked David about the night of the shooting. His questions revealed new details about the evening of the raid. You previously testified about what time you arrived back home from the laundry, correct? I've already stated that, between 10.30 and 11. Once you got back home, did you leave your house again at all between then and 4 o'clock in the morning? No. And Sandra never left the house either, correct? That's correct. The next document is a three-page document. It is also a Celebrite extraction report on the personal cell phone. I'd ask it be marked 190 for identification. Garden placed the report on the court projector. It showed a list of calls made and received by David's cell phone. The prosecutor pointed to a specific phone number. That's Sandra's number, correct? That's correct. On 10-28-2014, at 12.14 a.m., you made a call to her that lasted for 56 seconds, correct? According to David, he was home by 11 p.m. and Sandra was already asleep. If that was true, it was unclear why David would call her. Martinez provided an answer to the question. I didn't make that call. It could have been pocket dials. Pocket dial? Right. That's where the phone accidentally dials a number? That's right. Sometimes people call it a butt dial. Butt dial, I call it a pocket dial. At 12.14 a.m., the 56-second call, that was a butt dial. Yes. Garden pointed to call after call on the list. Okay. At 12.15 a.m., there's another call to Sandra, correct? There is. That's for 17 seconds. There is. At 12.52 a.m., there's another call that lasts 9 minutes and 15 seconds, correct? Correct. At 12.52 a.m., there is another call to Sandra, and that call lasts for only 2 seconds, correct? Correct. At 12.52 a.m., you call her again, and that call lasts for 1 minute 49 seconds, correct? Correct. At 12.54 a.m., there is a phone call placed from your phone to her phone, and that call lasts for 5 minutes and 15 seconds. Is that correct? That's right. At 1 o'clock in the morning, there is a call placed from your phone to her phone, and it lasts for 1 minute 27 seconds. Is that correct? That's correct. At 1.02 a.m., that call lasts for 1 minute 43 seconds, correct? Another pocket dial, yes. At 1.04 a.m., there is another phone call placed to her phone by your phone, and that lasts for 49 seconds, correct? Between 12.14 a.m. and 1.06 a.m., the log showed at least 10 calls from David's personal cell phone to Sandra's cell phone. But according to David, they were both at home, and Sandra was sleeping. The calls were made hours before the raid, but still, their existence prompts questions about David's narrative of the evening. On redirect examination, Sullivan did not ask David to address the subject of the calls, and no further explanation was provided by Martinez during the trial. But the phone records were not only used by the prosecution. Sullivan showed the jury a series of text messages that illustrated tension between David and the Mongols. The most relevant was an exchange between David and Sandra on October 16, 2014, 12 days before the raid on the Martinez home. 
The following is a reading of the messages portrayed by actors. Heading to 19, troubles pad, then home. Why are you going to troubles? Let me know how it goes. It's out of my biz. Why? Because I hope you get out of it. Doesn't seem like they want to let me go. It's ultimately up to you. I just don't want problems at my parents. I would rather get killed or die. The prosecution and the defense presented their arguments one last time on September 9, 2022. Afterwards, David's fate was once again in the hands of a jury. After the trial, I spoke with one of the jurors. Her name is Erin, and she asked that I refrain from using her full name or giving details about her occupation to protect her privacy. Why don't you tell me just a little bit about your first impressions of the case? Yeah, well, first of all, you know, it was a really sad and awful thing that happened. I think that was my first thought. Um, You know, Officer Diamond was just doing his job, and we're not supposed to factor in sympathy into our verdict, but obviously I was really sad about what happened. But, you know, I really only agreed to be on this jury because I knew that I could be right down the middle and like really listen to both sides without favoritism. And so, you know, prosecution did their opening first and obviously it appeared that David had a lot going against him. But I did think it was interesting that the prosecution did not mention the time frame of everything that happened. So when Sullivan came up, that's when we learned that It all happened in under 30 seconds, which I do think changed a lot of things. I asked Erin about her initial opinions of the case and if they changed over the course of the trial. So, you know, obviously we're explicitly told in the beginning that he's innocent until proven guilty. Um, So I believed that on, on day one, and I was kind of waiting for all the proof that it wasn't in self-defense and proof that he was lying. And so ultimately, I didn't find that. And instead, I think I found reasonable doubt, which is what it always comes down to. Um, So I guess you could say that my opinion didn't change um, because I presumed him to be innocent like we were supposed to. Erin told me that several factors gave her reasonable doubt about the charges of both second-degree murder and manslaughter. You know, I think that some of the simple facts were in David's favor. The fact that he was inside his own home and they were in the process of breaking into his home. You know, that's kind of the classic self-defense scenario that Sullivan said in closing, if you can't defend yourself inside your home, where can you? And, you know, just the fact that he was living with his entire family a reasonable person would also feel the need to protect his closest family members who are all in one house. Other factors that gave Aaron reasonable doubt included the testimony from Jaime Martinez that his firearm was pointed into the house, the testimony from Sandra and David Jr. that they didn't hear the officer's announcements, and David's testimony that he couldn't hear over the sound of the pounding and the dogs barking. <laughs> there he goes. Come on. Well, it's funny because he's quite an uh, 
loud barker. And so I could kind of relate to the idea of loud dogs barking. According to Aaron, when the jury reached deliberations, there weren't any domineering personalities in the room. They had a respectful conversation about the charges, and as a result, the panelists came to a verdict on second-degree murder. Yeah, well, so deciding on second-degree murder was answering the question, what was going through David's mind? Subjectively, what did he think he was doing? So we were able to agree on not guilty for second degree because we agreed that he thought he was in imminent danger and he thought subjectively like in his mind that he had to use that force to protect against the danger. After the jury agreed to acquit David Martinez of second degree murder, they still had to decide whether or not David was guilty of voluntary manslaughter. While they agreed that David fired his weapon because he believed he and his family were in imminent danger, the debate over manslaughter required the jury to ask if that subjective belief was reasonable. It was all about that question of reasonableness, and we ended up just talking in circles about what's reasonable and what's not, and we really just rehashed basically every main point of the trial. And to me, it really came down to the fact that it's a much higher bar that you have to meet to get to guilty. You know, there's that term abiding conviction that he's guilty. The prosecution tried to prove that it wasn't self-defense and that David was a liar, but I had numerous reasonable doubts. And so that's, you know, what it came down to while having a lot of respect for Officer Diamond. I think, you know, that's just how our system is set up, how it's a much higher bar that you have to believe fully that he's guilty. And all you need for not guilty are reasonable doubts. And so I felt like the law was pointing me to not guilty. As we did in the first trial, we tried various channels to invite all of the second trial's jurors to speak with us. However, Aaron was the only panelist who agreed to an interview. I did ask Aaron to describe the position of the jurors who disagreed with her. Um, yeah, I think there were, you know, talk about the drugs, of course, and talk about the small house and how, like, how could he not hear when it's a small house? And, you know, there was a lot of discussion about the fact that he fired so quickly. And I think that was, we spent a lot of time on that, just kind of talking in circles about some people thinking it's reasonable and some people thinking it wasn't reasonable. On Tuesday, October 11, 2022, the jury walked back into the courtroom to reveal the results of their deliberations. The jury foreperson passed the signed verdict form to the judge, who reviewed it and passed it to the court clerk. For the second time, David watched from the counsel's table. For the second time, his family bent their heads in prayer. For the second time, Sean Diamond's daughter clutched her notepad in her hands. And for a second time, the jury hung. The jury found David Martinez not guilty of second-degree murder, but they were deadlocked on the charge of voluntary manslaughter. The jury foreperson informed Judge Olmedo that the jury was split, 
with eight panelists who believed David was guilty of voluntary manslaughter and four panelists who believed David was not guilty of voluntary manslaughter. The jury was also hung on the charge of assault with a firearm on a police officer, with two panelists who believed David was guilty and ten panelists who believed David was not guilty. According to Aaron, the reported split on manslaughter wasn't entirely accurate. So when the judge asked, our foreperson said that it was eight guilty and four not guilty. However, that actually wasn't accurate, which multiple of us have brought up to the lawyers, because we didn't know that that final number was going to like be a significance. And so that was one of our polls that we took was eight guilty, four not guilty on manslaughter. But I'll just say it was fluctuating. But because we knew that there were holdouts on guilty, that we were going to be a hung jury anyway. Aaron explained that the jury didn't know that the split, guilty or not guilty on manslaughter, could be legally important to further proceedings. They didn't realize it could affect the DA's decision to pursue a third trial or impact the prosecutor's willingness to offer David a plea bargain. How do you feel about the verdict and and the trial and the experience in general? You know, I am disappointed that we couldn't get to not guilty um, because I took it very, very seriously and everything that I saw was the law was pointing me in that way. And so, you know, the whole thing, I just had no idea what to expect. And so, yeah, it was quite an experience. Um, Yeah. There was little closure for Officer Diamond's family. And David Martinez's fate once again was ensnared in the criminal legal process. After being acquitted for murder twice, David was still incarcerated. It was up to the DA's office to determine the next course of action. Would they offer Martinez a plea bargain? Or would they pursue a third trial on the charges of voluntary manslaughter and assault with a firearm on a police officer? That's next time on Night Raid. I'll tell the that you're a You can find this entire Night Raid series wherever you get your podcasts. Night Raid is a production of Crime Story Media in partnership with E1 Entertainment. Our executive producer is Carrie Antholis. I'm Molly Miller, the host, producer, and writer of this episode. Associate producers are Brittany Bookbinder, Lexi Notabartolo, and Aaron Koronek. Audio editing by Chris Terracone. Rick Schnapp did our mix with additional audio editing by Tyler Newhouse. Music and sound design by Eldad Guetta, with Foley assistance by Elia Guetta, and scoring assistance by Nikki Hemmingson. Additional music by Half Gringa. 
Tonancina Sparza is our casting director. Voice actors in the episode were Ellie Ramirez, Alex Alfaro, Carrie Antholis, and David Kelsey. Our title track is Alimony by Half Gringa. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Night Raid. Thanks for listening.